Thank you, Jacob. What a blessing it is to be reminded of those important truths. He came and took on flesh, gave himself to save the lost. We're included in that group, aren't we? So we can thank the Lord in our own heart, even right now, as we prepare for our time in the Word. Everything that we've done up until now prepares us for the time of teaching, that we might know what the Word of God says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to us. It's good to be back here with you. Good morning, and I'm glad that you're here. If we can minister to you in some way, if you've got a question about something, if you've got uh, a ministry of the Word or something, you can use that QR code in the seat in front of you, and we'd be glad to talk to you about whatever those questions may be, minister to you, pray for you. If you've been with us, you know that we teach verse by verse through the books of the Bible. We are currently in the middle of a study through the pastoral letters. We've entitled the study, Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. We've spent about 20 plus messages in the study so far, and we laid a foundation early on in the series introducing the Apostle Paul, introducing Timothy, some of their background. It's important to know those things, otherwise we won't understand what's going on and why we need to hear the things we need to hear. And then we took in some of the background of the church at Ephesus, and we looked at first at Paul's focus on discernment. As early on in verse uh, chapter 1, he uh, taught us how to know what's true as he addressed some of the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus for some time. And then beginning in chapter 2, in verse 1, we began to look at guidelines for public worship, which is the major theme in the letter, based on Paul's own statements from chapter 3 and verse 15, where Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so the purpose of the letter was pretty clear to Timothy as he read through it the first time. As you may imagine, that's how it arrived to him as a letter from Paul. And he read through it. He understands what Paul is after. And Paul jumps right in. And so in chapter 2, we looked at corporate prayer. And then we looked at women's roles in the church. And then we moved into chapter 3. And Paul begins to address leadership in the church. And we know from our background and from just the reading recently that there's been no, no small amount of trouble in the church in Ephesus since Paul's last visit. And so what he does is he re is released from his imprisonment. He goes by, gets Timothy, and they go together to Ephesus. And Paul then begins to straighten things out. He puts out some of the current leaders. They wouldn't change and wouldn't repent, so he uses church discipline. He puts them out of the church. And then he leaves Timothy there to continue straightening up and continuing the work. And he intends to come back. And he says, but in case he's delayed, which we know that he was permanently, he was promoted to heaven before he could come back. He's instructed by the Lord to write Timothy a pair of letters so that Timothy would understand what he needed to do. And he does that because bad leadership in the church has led into bad doctrine. And bad doctrine always leads to misinformed conscience, and then that's the door to all kinds of wrong positions and wrong behavior, and the damage has been done. So Paul will be carried along to address a number of things which are still relevant today in the church, but one of the first things he has to address is those who lead the church. Now last week, we celebrated the Lord's table, but before we were able to do that, we took a look at some selected passages, and you'll notice that I put that in the bulletin, I, our main text and selected. That just means that we're going to go to places that will illustrate the main text. It gives us an opportunity to teach on some of these things and these main doctrines, and so it's going to help us to fit all these things together. And what we did last time in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians chapter 2, 
And Ephesians chapter 4, we began to learn the larger plan for God, that God has for the church, how he fits all of it together. It takes those who, who come and minister there and those who lead and how he has sovereignly placed them where they're supposed to be as he sees fit. And he's appointing gifts to every believer and setting them in the church. And so it's not just leadership that he's working in sovereignly. It's not just them that he's calling and giving gifts and making sure they come up under those teachings and requirements. But everyone, the church is orchestrating everyone in the church. And he's actively involved in putting together Christ's body on earth. So that the church can be equipped and be matured. And under the teaching of pastors and teachers to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body. Now those... Uh, that remarkable pattern really places each member then in the church just where he wants, God wants them. And so you can be assured as you're here, he wants you here as you have spiritual gifts, he wants you to use them. And so that brings us then into the present. And we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 where we have been given some qualifications for those then who lead the church. And we've been looking at the single office, and that's appropriate because that's where we are in the passage. And in the first two verses, we have seen a number of qualifications for godliness that are required of those who pastor the church, and these are godly qualifications for every believer. They apply to everyone. They just have to be the example in the pulpit. And so far, we've seen, and I won't give you the supporting verses because we've spent a lot of time there, but we've seen these things so far in the first two uh, verses. Number one, the office of overseer or elder or bishop is held by a man. Number two, there is a definitive call in the background of the qualified man. Number three, the office includes the labor of oversight. And number four, the Holy Spirit creates a desire to lead the church. And then that is called a wonderful calling. So he gives a stamp of approval on the leadership that goes on. Number five, he has to be in a present state of blamelessness. It's called above reproach. And what we saw is at that point, we realized that whatever comes afterward here in the passage is likely what it means to be blameless. So he has to come up under these things that follow. And that's what it looks like in blamelessness. And then number six, he's devoted to one woman in heart and mind. He's a one woman man. And number seven, he's a man that does not participate in the drinking of alcohol. And the word that we saw there is temperate, which is in the Greek word, wineless. So that allows him then to be alert, watchful, vigilant, and clear-headed. And so that is the example of godliness, of course, the example of godliness for all people. Now, number eight, prudent is the next word that's the set of example of holiness and seriousness and soundness of mind. It doesn't mean long face. It doesn't mean sternness. It just means that they're not frivolous with the Word of God. Number nine, respectability. It just reflects organization. It's the word for cosmos. Number 10, hospitable. That is a compound Greek adjective that has to do with uh, friends of strangers. And so the pastor has to be doing that, hosting in his home those who are strangers to him. Uh, that is the standard of godliness for all believers. We looked at a lot of passages that just uh, direct it towards those who are in the church. And then number 11, the overseer must be one who is, it says, a good teacher. He must be apt to teach the Word of God. And we've seen all of that then last week. Why is that important? Because under that teaching, the body of Christ can be built up and nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine and equipped for every good work. And so I gave you a lot of supporting passages to help you understand those words. If you've missed any of that, I would strongly encourage you to go back and catch up. There are many things that fly right in the face of the modern church, particularly Protestant churches, and it's important for you to understand why you believe that, what the Bible says, and why it's important to understand what it says. And it helps us see then this standard of godliness that is required for everyone. And so I won't go back over all of that. But we saw, really very importantly, we got a new word for those who 
who are in the pulpit, and that is the word teacher. And so last week, the office of overseer called by another name, teacher. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we saw, as God has appointed in the church, he said, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And teachers now is uh, those have moved into that primary spot. Apostles and prophets have moved on after the first century. And then 1 Timothy 4, 11, Paul tells Timothy, he says, these things command and teach. In the verse 16, pay close attention to yourselves and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. And so everything is about teaching. Uh, chapter 5, verse 17, work hard in the word and teach. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 13, hold on, he says, to sound words. 2 Timothy 2, 15, study to show yourself approved unto God. Here's the part that isn't on there. A workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You want to avoid shame in your life? Understand what the word of God says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies. And that helps you to avoid shame. For those who lead the church, where this is directed to them for sure, initially, study to show yourself approved unto God. You have to be able to interpret it correctly, making a straight cut. The essence of everything then, as we can kind of see, is teaching. That's why 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things you've heard from me, commit to faithful men who will be faithful to teach others also. It's all about teaching. It's all about discipleship. And that's why we focus on it here. If we understand the instruction at all, we have to know that this is the issue for the church. Because now in the apostolic era, it's dying out. And the prophets are moving on. They finished their courses and completed their race. And so there's now a great need in the church, especially in Ephesus, for pastors and teachers and elders and shepherds, market, who will repeat... What's been written down, that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2. What you've heard from me, faithful to commit to faithful men. And so the saints can be perfected, and so the new converts can be discipled and begin to grow, and then the church grows. And so we saw that two weeks ago, really, that this function is placed right here, this apt to teach, which is the last qualification we looked at in our main passage. It's um, right in the middle of all these moral and character and testimony types of qualifications, and so you may, you know, have a guy who possesses this great ability in teaching, but Paul puts this here because if you teach one thing and you even teach it skillfully, but you live another, you're not a skillful teacher. It's just like a microcosm in your own family. If you tell your family, if you tell your children that Christ is everything and that Jesus is the fabric of life and that living for him is life, but then you live another, you're not a skillful teacher. See, they're going to learn from your actions and it's going to disregard the things that you want to say. It works the same way in the church. People will be turned away from following the teaching, even though the teaching may be correct. Your children may turn away from the teaching, even though what you're saying to them is correct, because you're not living that out, and they watch and see that that's happening. So you have to pattern your life by what you propagate in your lesson, and that's the example in the pulpit, of course, and that is requirement for those in the pew. And other, otherwise, the teaching is going to avail very little for the work of the ministry, the main part of the ministry, which we just looked at, the practical ends of equipping the saints and nourishing with sound doctrine, equipping for service, unless it's accompanied by market blamelessness. So you have to live what you say you believe. Now look at verse 3, and we're going to, and following, we're going to pick up some more of the standards by which blamelessness is measured. What I'd like to do, because I haven't read through the whole passage in a little bit, I'd like you to look at verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm just going to read all the way through verse 7. Let's do that, okay? Um, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, 
able to teach. We just went over all that. Now, verse 3. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6. And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's stop right there. Now, first thing that we see in verse 3 seems to be, at first glance, a repeat of verse 2. Back in verse 2, we saw the adjective temperate, and we understand that nephileos is, is the word for wineless, and we looked at that quite extensively. And that is an important word for us to understand. Wineless is the way it was, it was uh, understood in the first century. It's how it's understood now. To those who serve in the pulpit, that is the, that is the standard for godliness and for those who are in the pew. Now, but verse 2 has another adjective. It's um, temperate or, so, uh, or sober, literally. Uh, so, nephileos is temperate or so, uh, or. Uh, are sober. The next one is not addicted to wine. So you get to verse 3 and you realize he's going to bring it up again. Uh, paranois. Uh, paranois is a compound adjective. Para is beside. And uh, oinos is the word for wine. Literally, he's saying not beside wine. So the first one is wine less. Now this next one is not beside wine. Now if you say not beside wine in the English, that doesn't make any sense. And so translators have, have translated it in different ways. Some say not addicted to wine, but not beside wine, or they're in the place of, if you will, drinking. The understanding is, it's the atmosphere with those who do drink. That's the emphasis. And remember, this is all about testimony. It's all about character. And so it makes sense, then, as you get to principle number 12, for the overseer as the example, he has to be one who's careful to avoid, here it is, the appearance of a drinker. Those associations and the locations now are in view here. So he's wineless, and it wouldn't make sense to say um, not addicted to wine if that's what it actually is clearly saying. What he's saying is you're going to not be in the place of it either. It's easy to become part of it if you're in the place of it. So you're not supposed to be in the place of it. So the standard of qualification then, which is to be held here, uncompromisingly by those who lead as an example and not only to be wineless, but also to avoid being around those who are drinking, being beside or in the place of, if you will, alcohol. And that could be places where everyone around you is participating uh, or going somewhere with those you know who will indulge. Um, that's the standard for godliness for everyone, to avoid the appearance that you're a drinker. It says the idea of relationships and associations. He's not a drinker. He doesn't go to bars. He doesn't go to taverns, places that would, be, that would be occurring all around, and he could be associated with all of that. He doesn't go to places with people who are drinkers. That's the best sense of the passage. Now, just to illustrate that a, a little bit, um, I played the guitar for a really long time. I, learned, I started learning at six, and I've played with a lot of different people and groups over the years. One of the places that I don't play are bars. It's not because we can't play there. In fact, that's probably the most likely place to play unless it's a coffee shop. And people, owners want you there. People like live music. Here's the problem. If I play there, uh, the bar usually gives you whatever you want to drink. I don't drink. I don't drink because of the principles that we see here in the scripture. But I may be drinking something, and so no one knows what I'm drinking. Here's the problem. Now I'm violating the second one, aren't I? 
I'm about people and with people who are drinking. And even though I love making music, that's one of the hard, fast rules that I had is that I'm not going to go there because I don't want to compromise my testimony. It's not because I'm holier than anybody. It's just because I understand that a compromised testimony is very hard to get over. It's very hard for me to turn around and witness to someone after I've appeared to be doing exactly what the world does. Do you see? And so I think you can make that connection. It's not hard. It's just hard to hear. And so, you know, that's associations, those who are around you doing it, that's the best sense. And again, I think it's just obvious. And here's the thing, for the Holy Spirit then to come along through Paul and make another mention of alcohol gives the understanding of how important the issue is for the believer. Because he says it twice here as a standard of holiness. Once that has to do with being wineless, and the other has to do with not hanging out with those who also are drinkers. So on top of everything else we've talked about, then right from the beginning, I told you that that drinking today is not a one-to-one with biblical drinking of wine. And I give you all of those passages. And then you have examples of literally hundreds of passages that cast alcohol in a negative light or give examples of people who used alcohol and then ended up doing something shameful or in dissipation. You compound that by the fact that there's no passage in the Bible that condones drinking alcohol. All forbid it or at best caution and limit its application. And then with that, and we just got through talking about the compromised testimony that participating in alcoholic beverages inevitably creates, along with a bad example it sets for your children. And then you put that with your putting yourself in a position of taking on encumbrances and taking on sins instead of setting them aside, as Hebrews 12.1 tells us to do. And then add that, it's a vice that is rarely ever unloaded without pain and heartache. And there are plenty of examples in the scriptures, and you probably have plenty of examples in your own life. I know I do in my own extended family. And then we just debunk the whole idea that, and the deception that it's justified under your freedom in Christ and that you're a strong believer so you can do it. Okay, that's, that's hogwash. We looked at all of that. Freedom in Christ is you're free from the, the debt of sin, that no sin you can do is going to separate you from the love of Christ, that you're never going to be in jeopardy of losing your salvation. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to do whatever you want to do, particularly if you see it's strictly and clearly taught in the Scriptures. So you've got to get that straight in your head. And then you look at these current adjectives that we have in, in the way of and then wineless. It really takes the believer's association and locations, including all the other things. And so, and, and just bring a couple of illustrations here that kind of help you drive this home. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, it's really a great illustration and, and here it's just directed to the church. So Paul's writing to, in Thessalonica. It's a letter. It's going to be cyclical. So they're going to read it there. They're going to pass it on to other churches. Here's what he says. Avoid all appearance of evil. So that means, mark this, all outward appearances of a compromised testimony. So you can't make an argument that I, I can drink and that's not going to compromise your testimony. You can't make that argument. Because though that's what the world does. And as soon as you start doing what the world does, although you're not cast away with the world, you're going to have a difficult time making that case. So Paul just makes it clear to the Thessalonians, avoid all appearance of evil. We're supposed to be aware of all of that and apply it correctly. What does it look like? Because I want to be pleasing to Jesus, not because I want people to think I'm good. So we're supposed to be aware of all of that, and there's no place in that for leadership, and no place for that in leadership, and certainly as we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, even if you don't accept the fact this is one godly standard for those in the pulpit and those in the pew, you still have to see this one. There's no place for it, First Thessalonians says, for any believer to compromise your testimony. 
Then an even more difficult one to hear, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, I wrote to you, so we, and we understand in 1 Corinthians, there was a previous letter, we don't have it, but Paul had written and he had addressed a few things. Here's what he said, he's reminding them. He said, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he has an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, market or drunkard, Methusos, that's another word that has to do with alcohol. This is the word that indicates being intoxicated. So drinking at any point to get you to the point where it varies and it's impacting how you think, act, whatever. So we're not to associate with any so-called brother who does that or is an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, or swindler. And then it says not even eat with such a one. So what does it say? Does it say it's okay to hang with them as long as I don't do it? Is it okay to associate with friends who do those kinds of things? And listen, you know, being intoxicated is thrown in with not nice company. And so I think it's important to point out, and certainly instructional for us, that you're not supposed to have those associations or be in those locations at all, including eating. And so I think that, that goes very well with what we just got through saying, not in the way of alcohol. You're not where that's being done. And Paul says, I already wrote this to you, not to associate, now mark this, with any, here's what he says, so-called brother. Now the word associate is be in proximity to or in the company of, and then he says so-called brother. That's an interesting comment, and perhaps you might think it's a little judgy. But why does he say it's so-called? Well, I think that's pretty obvious, right? People who call themselves believers. So he's addressing the church, and he's saying there are some people who call themselves by the name of Christ. They're so-called, though, because they're allowing things in their lives that call their relationship to Jesus into question. You see? That, that makes pretty clear sense. There's no other really way you can come away from that passage. And one of those things, along with some other very nasty things, is alcohol. So as a believer, that person may say, hey, I'm a Christian, but they may be doing some things that compromise their testimony, and you're not supposed to be, have fellowship with them. And that's a, pretty important, that's a pretty important passage and a pretty clear teaching. Now, I'd like you to hold your finger here, and I'm going to have you go somewhere. Isaiah 28, if you would do that for me. Now, you may say, well, I'm not sure where that is. So turn to Psalms. That's about the middle of your Bible. Then turn right, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. I told first service, if you find that a lot of your pages in your Bible are really sticky right there and they're not coming apart very easy, that means you probably need to read your Bible more, okay? And get into the middle part of it, all right? So... Um, Isaiah 28, verse 1. Now, these are very, very difficult passages to hear. And I told you uh, two weeks ago that there are literally hundreds of passages that deal with the negative effects of alcohol, and you have no passages confirming that you should be doing it. And so here are some of them, and I want to give them to you. And They're very hard to hear. I'll just tell you in advance. It's interesting, though, because some of the words are very much parallel to what we're reading now in the New Testament. And so um, Isaiah 28 he says this, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Well, that's not a really nice way to start, right? And makes people not feel very good about themselves. So Ephraim, obviously one of the tribes of Israel, have a proud crown, but they're drinking all the time. And to the fading flower of its glorious beauty. And just as a note, alcohol always diminishes everything it touches. It never adds anything, although some people perhaps think that it does which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. 
Behold, so he's identifying them, and this is a vice that they have. Verse, verse 2, Behold, the Lord, has, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. So he's going to judge the nation. Verse 3, The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, so he says it again, is trodden underfoot. Verse 4, And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which when one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. So in other words, the destruction comes more quickly than those who participate uh, in alcohol think it will. So they've been identified as those who drink constantly. It is part of their lifestyle. I'm sure they didn't start thinking this is how we're going to end up. But that's how they're identified now in the Scriptures forever. Not a very nice picture. Now look at verse 7. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. Again, identifying them and what their actions have produced. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? What's the answer? No one. And right from the very beginning in Leviticus, it says that's prohibited. Any kind of drinking of wine at all is prohibited by those who lead. And yet, here we go. We fast forward into the nation 400 years, and now you're at the very end of the nation, and what, how is identify Ephraim? And Ephraim's not the only one. They're consumed by drink. Nice bunch of leaders, eh? That's the example they provided, and many of the people followed them. Now turn to Isaiah 56. Would you do that? In verse 9. This describes the environment the leaders have fostered. So we're going to see how this continues to go. And and this is Israel. We see this very common parallel in the modern church today. This is the direction the church has gone. Here's what he says in verse 9 of Isaiah 56. All you beasts of the field, all beasts of the forest, come to eat. So this is the enemies of Israel. The Lord's calling them. Come. Uh, All the pitfalls of the cultures around them. Come. Verse 10. His watchmen are blind. Who are the watchmen? The leaders and the priests spiritual leaders, all of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. They're supposed to be barking, right? When, as a warning, they're supposed to be shepherding. They're supposed to be making sure that the people avoid these pitfalls. They're, they're um, mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy and they're not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned away to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Now mark the root of the problem. Verse 12, come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. And that is, that is the basic premise of everyone who's consumed by alcohol. Tomorrow will be another time where we can go and use it. See, That's the spiritual leadership of Israel. And so it's no wonder that they went the direction they did. And that problem is still in the modern church today. And beloved, no one starts down that trail thinking, you know, this is where I'd like to end up. Nobody starts down the trail thinking, uh, you know, I'm going to take on this vice, but it's not going to master me. Well, many millions of people said the same thing, and yet it did. So these are just problems later on. We're not even addressing the actual instruction, which says to avoid it. But this is the consistent evaluation of alcohol throughout the Scriptures. And like I told you before, we could spend weeks just looking at these passages. There are hundreds of them. That's why Proverbs 31 says it's 
Wine is not for kings. It's not for princes. It's not for leaders. That's why Leviticus 10.9 says it's not for priests. It's just not for them. Anybody in spiritual leadership stays away from anything that distorts reality or has the ability to take over and dominate them. Anybody. And that is the example of godliness for everybody. Now, let's look at our next, our next uh, three. They're connected to each other. Look at verse three if you would. So verse three says, not addicted to wine, or here's our next one, pugnacious. Uh, literally, a giver of blows, a striker. So the guy who's in the pulpit and those who are in the seats, uh, it, has, it comes from the word to flatten or to knock down. And that's principle number 13 for the overseer as an example. He has to exhibit an even temper. This has to do with self-control. So in other words, he doesn't strike with his fists when he gets annoyed. Those who lead are not to do that. Those who are in the pews are not to do that. Instead, he is, it says, gentle. This is patience and restraint rolled into one. That's principle number 14. The example that the overseer must exhibit is the fruit of the Spirit again. It is self-control. When people oppose him, which happens often inside the ministry, he can defend his position with restraint. He has patience. He's gentle. And we see that very clearly, these types of fruit of the Spirit. We understand that's for everyone as we look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Here's one of our... Peace, and here's part of what patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Here it is, gentleness, self-control. So that fruit of the Spirit is supposed to be borne by every believer. It's supposed to be exhibited. If you're going to be in the pulpit, you have to be someone who is not a giver of blows, who is gentle, and who is, here's the next word, peaceable. He's peaceable. Literally, it just means not contentious. So, verse, uh, number 15, the example of the overseer uh, in godliness is, again, the fruit of the Spirit, has to do with self-control, and the idea is he's not looking for a fight. I love how James expresses this in James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. He says this, he says, but the wisdom which is from above, so if you want God's wisdom, if you want to be exhibiting God's wisdom, is first pure, it's never compromised with ungodliness or, unwor- or worldliness or wickedness. Then peaceable, gentle. So again, we're seeing the same words again, aren't we? Uh, the wisdom from above is peaceable, pure, gentle, reasonable. It means he can talk and reason and understand, listening, full of mercy and good fruits. And then this one, unwavering. It doesn't mean that he's being rolled over. It doesn't mean that because you have wisdom from above, you, you'll... you'll flip over to another side just because somebody wants you to. Without hypocrisy, again, so you can't say one thing and then do something else. The wisdom from above is consistent. Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness, mark this, is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I see this often in, in, from time to time with guys who are ministers, maybe you've been in the pulpit for a while, or, or guys who are coming up through Berean and they always want to argue. It always has to do with some minutia, something a scripture they think is so important. And they want to make this point constantly and how this is the way it is and all of that. And, and, um, and when I first came here uh, 14 years ago, it was very contentious. I mean, they would have said it was very academic. So inside their small groups, inside their Sunday schools, a lot of contentious types of arguments about little things. What was the problem with that? Well, you're not going to grow any righteousness if you don't sow the seed in peace, see, 
So I had to disband some of that, and, and those teachers had to be asked not to teach again, because that's not the way it happens. And, and if you're going to minister, and you want to sow a seed that produces righteousness, you have to do it in peace, see? It doesn't mean that you're not saying the truth. It doesn't mean that it doesn't come across as hard to hear in a culture that's acclimated its way into the church, and the church has acclimated itself to the culture. It just means that it has to be sown in peace. And I, I told this the first service, you know, <clears throat> If you want to get me to leave a church that I'm visiting, let the minister start yelling. I am so out the door, like in a minute, okay? That is such a turnoff to me, and I grew up in a family of yellers, and I determined in my own heart that I would never raise my family that way. That's not sowing in peace, beloved. That, that, that is the way you don't produce righteousness. And so these are, these are things that are just very, very important, I think, as you think about uh, the example of godliness for everyone if you want the church to grow in righteousness, you have to plant it in peace. And sometimes you have to keep the peace by following the instructions Paul gave to Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Reject a factious man after the first and second warning. Sometimes people just won't stop arguing. And obviously, Paul is writing to Titus, and uh, Titus is pastoring a church, and he probably has some contentious people. What does Paul say? Give them a couple warnings. That's church discipline, and then ask them to go. And you, sometimes you have to do that. You have to say, you know, this is probably not a good place for you. It's you're not at peace, I'm not at peace, what we're growing here is not peace and not righteousness, so it'll probably be good for you to go. And, and Romans 12, 18, again, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is a passage that I taught all my sons after I taught them how to fight, because they have to defend themselves, right, and those that they love. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, you have the, you have the ability, right? It doesn't change any of the other instructions. Sometimes it isn't possible. And sometimes it doesn't depend on you. But if it's possible and it depends on you, you're at peace with all men, see? And so the one who aspires to the office of overseer has to give an example of all of this, right? The example of godliness. And there's just one standard of godliness for everyone. It's the same one that we're reading. Now, Look at, the, look at the next one, and this is, uh, this is the last one we'll get to today. So, he says this, not addicted to wine or giver of blows, but gentle, peaceable, and then this one, free from the love of money. Alphilaguros uh, is alpha primitive, so it's negative, we understand that in, in English. And then there's philos, which is we saw already, you're supposed to show hospitality, a friend of strangers, and then aguros is silver. So it's a real simple understanding. It's not a friend of silver. So I like that. Very simple. And so number 16, the example for the overseer, and that he has to exhibit, and this is the same example for everyone. He's not to have his attention fixed on a monetary reward. It can't be the thing that drives what he does. And in order to do that, then he's going to have to wage an unceasing battle to keep material things in their proper place because the culture bombards you with that, right? Especially as you get into Super Bowl season, right? Any playoff, it's always Lexuses and, you know, all the best cars and all the best houses and, and retirement as early as you can for as long as you can to do nothing, you know, and all that. Everything's about material things. Everything's about being possessed by and possessing things in the culture to make your life better. Now, let me just clarify something. We wouldn't have anything if the Lord didn't provide it. So if you have wealth, if you have things, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable. You know, we're going to see as we get into this passage in Timothy, the Lord richly gives you all things to, catch it, enjoy. 
So God's not a miser thinking, you know, if you strip off enough things, right, like the monks of old, if you just get rid of enough stuff, then eventually you'll be pleasing to God. It's not an onion that you're getting down to the middle, okay? This is just this. It can't possess you, okay? And so it's an interesting passage, and a qualified elder must do this. So the question comes to me, and I'm going to pass this on to you, if if you and I are supposed to be free from the love of money, and that's the example of godliness for me and for you, then the question is, how do I know if I love money? Isn't that a, that's a legitimate question, right? How do I know if I, if I can qualify here? And so I'm going to share with you a few passages that are helpful to me and ones that we're going to look at way more in depth when we get there. If you're not supposed to be a friend of silver, how do I know if I qualify, and how do you know if you qualify? There's some scriptures I'm going to give you, and I'm just going to go through them fairly rapidly. And so knowing and be content knowing that when we get here, we'll go through them with a lot more support. But I think this will be helpful if, if, if this is a question you have, and it should be perhaps if you think about the one standard of godliness and you think about not being a lover of silver, um, you have to ask that question about yourself too. So let's ask it, and let's start right here. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. It's one of the passage we've used before. Uh, many years ago, we've taught through uh, a theology of money and things and materialism and all of that. And so you may remember some of this, but Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it. So how much of the earth and how much of wealth and how much what is in the earth do you own? So anything that you have then is alone. If the Lord owns everything, if the world all belongs to him and everything in it and everyone in it, if it all belongs to the Lord, he created it, then everything you have, whatever it is, is alone. That's not a bad thing. If you have a lot, that's great. The Lord's given you a lot. If you have a little, that's fine. The Lord's given you a little. Whatever it is, though, you just need to make sure you understand that it all belongs to him. So here's the first question. Do you agree that everything you possess comes from God? Seems simple enough answer. Should be able to say yes pretty easily to that. And just to confirm that understanding, we see 1 Timothy 6, 7, and 8. Uh, very clearly, Paul teaches Timothy to teach the church, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That's just pretty straightforward, right? You came into the world, you didn't have anything, and you're not taking anything with you. So anything that was given to you while you're here, that's a stewardship. So that makes sense pretty clear. And then verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Here's question two. Would you be content with just those things? Just the necessities of life. That's not an easy answer, is it? The level of income and wealth are really irrelevant in answering that question. You can love money and not have very much of it, and you can love money and have a lot of it. It doesn't really matter. It's where the heart is. And so Philippians 4.11 kind of helps us and it's tied to that. Uh, Paul just affirms in his own life, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In fact, he just got through saying, I've learned to abound and to abase. He, he had both. So here's the question. Number three, that's connected to the number two. If your situation never changes, are you okay with that? And again, I believe the answer has very little to do with your current level of wealth and everything to do with how you evaluate it. But if where you are now, that's the essence of the question, is where you're always going to stay for the remainder of your life, would you fight against that? Here's the third question. Here's the fourth question, rather. But those who, 1 Timothy 6, 9, want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here's your next question. Have you been able to put away from yourself the desire to attain 
things, because that's the whole essence of the passage. You're desiring to get rich, you're desiring to have wealth, you're desiring to multiply your portfolio, you run into a snare and temptation and many foolish harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wanting to be rich has ruined a lot of testimonies and embarrassed a lot of people. It's ruined families and created missed opportunities because if you're okay with moving the line and keeping moving the line, whatever it takes to get it, that's going to be a problem. Here's the next one, question five. For the love of money, verse 10, is the root of all sorts of evil. Not money itself, what? Where is your heart? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's question five. Have you been able to subdue the worry associated with the possible loss of your material things? Because hanging on to things from Paul's teaching produces a lot of opportunity for sorrow. And those who are wealthy sometimes believe erroneously that they are insulated or immune from disaster and catastrophe and financial ruin. So it's really the same thing, just backwards, right? You've surrounded yourself with so much, you think that you're okay, but you have surrounded yourself with so much because you were worried you wouldn't be okay. And so erroneously you believe that somehow you'll never fall into catastrophe. You've insulated yourself. Here's the next one, 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You can see how these are all connected together. But here's our sixth question. Have you been able to divorce your identity from your ability to make wealth and disconnect your sense of well-being from your bank account balance. That's the essence. In other words, and you can kind of tell this, whether or not you're answering yes or no, are you looking at your bank or investment portfolio pretty often and spending your time thinking how you're going to spend it or worrying about what you would do without it? Because that's not hypothetical in our current environment, is it? How about verse 18? Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here's question seven. Do you share what you have consistently, generously, and sacrificially? Not out of your abundance. Not just when you're doing really well, but all the time. And again, that's a very hard question to answer honestly, isn't it? Because we all estimate that we are very generous. But the most recent giving statistics for evangelical churches would indicate otherwise. 50% of believers give nothing. 50% of believers give nothing. Most think they're very generous, but the statistics don't lie. Average giving is about 2% of net income. People spend four times more in interest than they do in giving. And so that's a tough one, isn't it? But I think it's an important barometer about where your heart is and where my heart is. Additionally, ask yourself this question as it connects to this question. If everyone in Berean gave like I have in the past, would ministry have been able to continue? Or in other words, if everybody's faithfulness, wherever you are, and their generosity and sacrifice out of what the Lord supplied me to live on, because it all belongs to Him, was equal to mine, where would we be? See. Here's the last one. Verse 19. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation. Let me back up. You probably want to write that down.
storing for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This is the last question. Question number eight. Do you believe that giving consistently, generously, and sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have? Because that's precisely what the passage indicates. Teach them to store for themselves a treasure of a good foundation. Be generous and willing to share if you want to take hold of what is life indeed. So the idea is there's this potential life you could have, but it's going to be connected to you handling your finances like the Lord has indicated they should be handled. So do you believe that giving that way and being generous and sacrificial leads to a better life than you currently have? Because Scripture clearly says in many places, and we'll look at a number of these as we go through, that this kind of lifestyle leads to an abundant life. And the Scripture defines what that is. Now, I just blew through these verses today because we're out of time. And I want to, to tell you that I'm, we're going to get back there and we'll get to these, these passages and we'll spend a lot more time there. But here's the thing. If you answered no or you weren't sure about your answer to any of those questions, that will probably indicate that you love money. It's very straightforward. Let's just be real practical. You may have found yourself just pursuing money. So it's not even a question that you love money because that's been your life. And one or more, one or more of those questions is clearly a no for you. And that's the modern day version of idolatry. Because you've put a lot of things ahead of what the Lord has specifically said is to be the head. And so that type of vice disqualifies the elder from office. And yet it goes on all the time around churches around the country. But if this possesses you, then you're disqualified. And it isn't to be named among those who sit in the seats either. And that closes out our time today. But it's been a full day. And I'm glad for it. I'm glad we could look at the passages. I know they're hard to hear. I know they fall hard. The standard for godliness is one that's not spoken about too much because it just encroaches on both the teacher and the hearer. I'd like you to bow in prayer and we're going to close out. We're going to have a little missions moment in just a moment and then we'll close everything out together. But I'd like you to pray and kind of seal up these things and, and start to ponder them and answer as the Lord would have us. Father, we thank you today for your blessings poured out on us. We want to start there. Even in the middle of hardship, we'd be hard-pressed to thank you fully for your blessings that you pour on us daily, even in the middle of difficult times. Thank you that you provide all that we need. Thank you that you've told us to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness and the things that we need will be added to us. Thank you that you're, you're not short on your promises and you're clear about your requirements. It's just we have a different set of priorities. Pray that we'll begin to align them correctly. And Father, thank you for giving us the church to build. As we know from 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 2 and 4, that we're all part of that process. We have a job to do. We're supposed to be plugged in and supplying the things that are needed. Help us to follow through with the responsibilities we have in this spiritual building, in this body, which is Christ's set up on the cornerstone of Jesus' work and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And please help us to be what we should be and do what we should do. And please give us the grace and the spiritual power to do it and to accomplish 
all you want for your own glory. As Philippians 1.9 says, for the church, help us and our love to abound more and more in real knowledge and all discretion. We want that. We want what Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, that our love will abound more and more in real knowledge and all discretion. Why? So that we can approve the things that are excellent. That's what we really need. In order to be sincere and blameless before the world, before the church, all of that, Father. Until the day of Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Him. And Father, as Jacob prayed earlier, we pray for all men everywhere, for kings and all in authority, because it's not your will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. So we think about that even today. We think about those who rule far from us, those who are causing disruptions in cultures that interrupt what the church wants to do, and we pray that you'll bring peace there. Either by removing those who cause the disruption or by bringing them to faith. It's what we desire. We don't want anyone, just like you don't want anyone, we don't want anyone, no matter how wicked they may appear to us, to spend eternity in hell, but all to come to the knowledge of salvation. Change our hearts, Father. Help us to be able to realize who the real enemies are. Help us to be part of your desire in our prayers, in our witness. And we pray all these things according to your will. For Jesus' sake and all God's people said.